following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to start a new series uh, through the book of Ezra. And uh, do we have the, the slides for that, hopefully? Um, and uh, so we're, uh, we're going to start a new series through the book of Ezra. And so I am excited about this series precisely because most people do not get excited about the book Ezra. And, uh, you know, I, I imagine that um, uh, of all the historical books that are given to us in the Old Testament, uh, Ezra is the one that, that probably you know the least about. So, so probably if you've grown up in church, if you've been reading the Bible for long, uh, you know about Israel's major leaders, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, the kings. And of course, we love other stories uh, of people like Ruth, Esther, Job, Daniel, and on it goes. And probably most Christians at least know that Nehemiah built a wall. All right, But, but I would venture to guess that that most Christians really understand the story of Ezra. And yet Ezra tells a very important piece of the biblical story that that connects the Old Testament to the story of Christ. And it really is a very important little book of just ten chapters that that pulls together a lot of stray threads of the Old Testament and helps us see how the Bible fits together. But it's not just that it's a really important book as far as the history of the Old Testament. Uh, Ezra is also a very practical story about a humble group of people who who faced a lot of difficult odds and hostile opposition, but they just continued to obey the Lord and trust the Lord. And God was faithful, and He took care of them. And, And I think we'll see as we work our way through this little book that their struggle has many similarities to our own, and that we can learn a lot from the examples of the people that are scattered throughout the book of Ezra. So with that said, this morning, I'll just tell you up front that this sermon is going to be a little bit more nerdy, all right, and a little bit different from our normal sermon structure. So I'm going to give you a more of a broad flyover of the whole book because a little bit of context is, is really helpful for understanding all the smaller pieces, all right? So, uh, so, so yeah, we're, gonna, we're not just going to walk through a text, make application like we normally do. We're, we're going to be looking at a lot of details, go over a lot of information, look at some charts and maps and all those things, and, and hopefully uh, give us a good foundation for the remainder of the study. And then, though, we're, we're not just going to do that. So uh, we'll wrap up today uh, by uh, kind of reviewing, looking at the major themes of the book, and thinking about how they apply to us and the major lessons that we can learn from this study. But before we get to all of that, I first want to rehearse a couple of important principles for reading Old Testament stories. All right, so, so I would imagine all right, that, that most of you, you really love the biblical stories. It's true that, that the Bible stories are, are some of the best stories that have ever been told. You know, the, the, the ten plagues. The crossing of the Red Sea, David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den. I mean, they are, they are great stories. You know, it's fun to have little kids, and you know, I, I think Goliath is probably Isaac's favorite Bible character. 
These fascinating, you know, they're, they're fascinating stories. And, um, but sometimes we struggle to apply them, right? Because most of the Bible stories don't end with the moral of the story is dot, dot, dot. You're left to figure out what is it that God is intending for me to learn and what is He intending for me to do? So, so we need a good strategy for recognizing what God is trying to say. So a couple of things here. First of all, it is very important when you read Bible stories that you look at the pieces in light of the big picture. All right, so, so I say this because so often when we read stories, we immediately get caught up in all the little details. You know, we want to know where's this town and that city? And, and why did this guy do this instead of that? And then when it comes to application, we, we think solely in terms of what actions did the characters do that I should imitate? And what did they do that I should not do? And so it basically uh, just becomes uh, about uh, what we do and don't do. So, so for example, all right, Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1 tells, the story, tells a fascinating story about how Queen Vashti lost her throne. Remember the story? And it's the stuff that makes for a great Hollywood flick. You know, it's got, it's got pride, it's got drunkenness, it's got lust, and, and, and all those things that you know, Hollywood just feasts on. And, 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 it, and it does serve as a sober warning that if you get drunk and you're proud, that bad things happen. All right? That is there. But, but if you know the whole story of Esther, you know that more than that, it's, it's really a piece of God's providential hand in moving the story towards ultimately the rise of Esther. And, and if you miss that, if you don't see the pieces in lie of the big picture, you're going to miss the main point of the story. So whenever you study a narrative, a story in the Bible, you need to stay focused on the big picture. So who was the story written for? And what is God trying to tell that audience? What is the theme of the book as a whole? And how does this story contribute to that overall message? That's very important because otherwise you can get lost in the details and miss what God is trying to say. And then a second principle to keep in mind, to go out even a step further, is that we need to look at the big picture in light of God's eternal purpose. So folks, the, the, the Bible, the story of the Bible is never just about us. And the Bible never tells you a story just because it's interesting or fascinating. No, no there's always a point and all of it ultimately ties into the fact that God is pursuing His own glory by fixing what was broken in the Garden of Eden. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 says that through Him, speaking of Christ, God is seeking to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So, so again, what God is doing, if we really step back and look at the Bible as a whole and all of history from, from the fall of Adam and Eve uh, until, uh, until the end of time, is that God is, is restoring everything that was broken by the fall. And He is working to, to, to build a kingdom of glorified saints who will live in a perfect creation and enjoy His presence for all of eternity. And of course, at the very center of all of that is Christ, right? 
That, that Jesus came and He died on the cross. He, he took our sin out of the way. He rose in victory and He is coming again. So Jesus is the center of everything. And so it is important that when you read the Bible, you, you always think in terms of how does this little piece fit within that broader work that God is doing in the world. And that's very important when we study the book of Ezra. Because when the story begins, Israel has no king, they have no land, and they have no temple. I mean, there are major holes in the movement of the Bible story from the fall and towards the redemption that is coming in Christ. And it's kind of hard if you're Israel to raise up a Messiah and see God fulfill all the promises that He had made to them about Messiah if you are scattered all over the Babylonian Empire. And so Ezra, folks, is not just a story about political strategies and building projects. No, Israel's enemies are assaulting God. The redemption that's promised through Christ and our eternal hope. And, and so we must remember those primary concerns as we work our way through this book. Otherwise, we're going to miss the, the, the biggest ideas and the most important ideas in this story. And that's not to say, all right, it's not to say that, that we don't learn from the examples of people. So, so 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that these things, these things are recorded for us that we would learn from their example. So, so we need to look at the dumb things that they, they did and the good things they did and, and imitate or reject. So that matters. But we must make sure that we don't miss the big story. So with that said, let's jump into Ezra. And just to set the stage, uh, let's read Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So, so that really sets the stage for, for the entire book, uh, that decree of, of King Cyrus. And, and I'd like to begin all right, today uh, by, by just setting this within a broader, um, a broader historical background. So, so we're going to spend a, a good chunk of our time today uh, setting up the historical background of this book. And, and to help us do this, I, I want to put up this uh, chart. And so uh, Bryce uh, put this together for me a few years ago, I think, uh, when we went through the book of Esther. All right, And, and what this, this chart does is it really charts, of uh, course, from the rise of the Babylonians uh, through the end of the Bible period, uh, Old Testament period, uh, somewhere around 400 B.C. So this is the tail end of your Old Testament story. All right? And, uh, and really, uh, the story of Ezra begins, fundamentally, uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So you can see up here uh, that, 
uh, there were three Babylonian invasions into Jerusalem. I don't know what, there it is. That thing's struggling. All right, so, so there were three uh, Babylonian invasions into Jerusalem in 605, uh, 597, and 586. And, and the third time the Babylonians came into Jerusalem, they absolutely devastated the city. Nebuchadnezzar came in and, and he burned the city. He destroyed the walls, every major structure in the, in the city of Jerusalem, and, and he flattened Israel's temple. And then he took every remaining citizen of the city that, that would be of any profit to the Babylonian Empire, and he carried all of them off into Babylon. He only left a few stragglers around. He left around the poor or those that, that had physical issues that wouldn't be worthwhile to bring to Babylon, and everyone else was taken away. Now, it is true that the prophets had warned Israel that this was coming. They had warned them for centuries at this point. But the captivity devastated the faithful remnant. After all, Israel's hopes depended on the Davidic kings, right? And and on the land of Israel. But now, after this captivity in 586, Israel's pride and glory was gone. The the Davidic kings were in captivity. Their land uh, belonged to the Babylonians. And, and, and they no longer had a temple. I mean, the temple had been their pride and glory. But now they've got no temple. They've got no place to offer sacrifices to God or to meet with God. And, and, and so keep your finger here. But turn over to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Because this psalm, I think, it is very helpful for just helping us appreciate where the Jews are at at this point. This psalm is a lament that is written from Babylon during the captivity. Psalm 137. It says, By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion or Jerusalem. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us, a so- of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Now now that is a a blunt psalm. And 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 frankly, we we struggle with the last couple lines of that psalm, right? And, And yet, I mean, think about what these people had just endured. I mean, they had been starved by a siege of Jerusalem. And when the Babylonians finally came in, I'm sure that they raped dozens, maybe hundreds of Jewish women, killed children. I mean, they came in and did horrifying things. And now the the Jews are carried off into captivity. They're being mocked. They've lost everything that they hold dear. And so it was a terrible blow to, to the faithful remnant of Israel. 
But, but of course, through it all, uh, they, they were never without hope. You know, I think one thing that's important to, to remember with this captivity is that it was very different from the captivity of the northern kingdom. So, if you remember your Old Testament history, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians had come in and, and they, had, they had defeated the ten northern tribes of Israel. And when the Assyrians came into the northern kingdom, they did not just carry off the ten tribes into captivity, they actually brought thousands of, of pagan refugees into the northern kingdom and settled them there. So, so if you've got all these other peoples in your land, it's kind of hard to come in and take it back, right? Because somehow you've got to kick them all out. But the Babylonians did not do that with Judah. They basically left it empty. So if you're a Jew, if you're an Israelite living in Babylon, you're thinking, if we can just get home, we can have our land back. But but the bigger issue, the bigger reason for hope, is that Jeremiah, as it says uh, in in Ezra chapter 1, it references a prophecy of Jeremiah. And, and, And God had said through Jeremiah before the captivity, that after 70 years, God would restore His people to their land. So, uh, Jeremiah 25, verses 11-13 through 13 say that this whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So God had said very clearly that this captivity is not forever. It will last for 70 years, which is basically the length of time you have from the first invasion in 605 until the Jews are allowed to come back. And folks, that prophecy meant a lot to the Jews. If you ever go to the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel remembers this prophecy that that God had given to Jeremiah. And he is praying that God would restore his people. So so even when they went into captivity, they went with the promise that ultimately they would come home. But of course, in the meantime, they got to figure out life, right? For 70 years. And so for 70 years, uh, the people lived in exile. And for the most part, the Jews adapted well. Of course, we have the story of Daniel. So Daniel and his three friends, they, they adapted really well, and they uh, became royal officials and did quite well. And we actually have other ancient records uh, which mention the Jews living in Babylon and doing well. Uh, they became royal officials. We have records of them becoming bankers and businessmen and merchants. And so a lot of the Jews did very well in captivity, but most importantly, they, they did extremely well in maintaining their national identity. So so imagine how hard it would be if you're a Jew. I mean, you get carried off into captivity. You're you're in this overwhelming place of of, of paganism and and sin and power. And and you'd think it'd be really easy just to kind of blend in, forget that you're a Jew, and just become a Babylonian. But but that's not what happened. In fact, the Jews really crystallized and became uh, more focused and, and, and zeroed in on their identity as people of God during the Babylonian captivity than they really ever did beforehand. And so it was a time, really, of refinement and growth. But but at the same time, God didn't want them to get too comfortable. And so He began to move just as He had said He was going to move. And He began to work to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others. 
And really, that begins with the fall of Babylon in, uh, in 539 B.C. And you probably, many of you know the story. You know, Babylon had grown powerful and large and fat and lazy. And in a single night, the Persian armies were able to come into the city, destroy the king of Babylon, and, and, and suddenly, you have this massive shift in world history. In, in one day, from the Babylonians being the world power to the Medo-Persians being the world power, and to Cyrus being the king. Now, when Cyrus walks into, into Babylon, if you are a Jew, you are dumbfounded. Because 200 years earlier, God had said through the prophet Isaiah that someday there's going to be a king named Cyrus, and he is going to fight for the people of God. So Cyrus walks in, and you're like, his name is Cyrus. I know that name. That's in the Bible. And, and, and we're going to talk more next week about this man, Cyrus. But Cyrus, he was a pretty shrewd guy. So, so you know, think about this. I mean, you, you walk into town, and all of a sudden, you are the world emperor. And, and, and most of the known world is your subjects. But you know what? They're not subjects, you know, willingly. They're not naturally loyal to you. So... So, so they're mostly forced subjects. So, so you're Cyrus, and you're thinking, well, how in the world am I going to inspire loyalty from these people and still get my tax dollars? So he comes up with a really shrewd plan. He decides that I'm going to get all these people to like me by doing something the opposite of what the Babylonians did. And he developed this policy of, of letting all of these people in captivity return to their homelands, and, and by funding them in rebuilding all of their own sacred sites and temples. In fact, we have a quote that archaeologists have found from Cyrus where he says, I returned to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. So, you know, some guy didn't just suck this story out of his thumb. I mean, like, we know from broader human history that this was Cyrus's policy, and it was a shrewd policy. But, of course, ultimately we know that, that it all came about because of the sovereign work of God who keeps His promises. And just had God had said long ago, He made a way for Israel to return. But, but as you can see on the timeline... All the Jews didn't just immediately pack up and head home. No, no we have uh, recorded in the Bible three different returns. So we have a first return in 538, a second return in 458, and a third return in 445 B.C. All right? And, uh, and that's important. So, so first of all, Ezra 1 through 7. Ezra 1 through 7 tells the story of this first return and as well the rebuilding uh, of the temple in Jerusalem. So, so this is a, maybe a, a key little point that's really helpful for understanding Ezra. Is that Ezra does not appear in the book of Ezra for like 80 years. He is not involved in, in the first major portion of the book. In fact, the, the majority of the book, he is not even alive yet. Because he does not appear uh, until 458. So, so you've got you know, roughly 80 years from the beginning of the first return 
to the second return. All right, so, so that's a helpful little detail. So instead, Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of David, led this first return, and as well, the reconstruction of the temple, which was finished somewhere around 516 B.C. And again, that's a big deal, right? Because, because you, you can't, um, you know, the, the, the fact that they were able to go home, that they were able to build their temple, but, but you can't really appreciate the book of Ezra without appreciating the fact that these returnees, as exciting as it was, they stepped into a very difficult situation. So, so for one, uh, I've got this map here, and this map shows you the territory that was theirs when they came home. And, um, and it illustrates the fact that they only inherited a territory that was a fragment of the territory that they had previously possessed. In fact, this territory that they have here is only 25 miles north to south and 32 miles east to west. And just to give you a little context, our county, San Bernardino County, is more than 10 times larger than this territory that they received. So this is a very small piece of territory. And as a result, the returnees didn't have near the financial or, or military resources that they had once enjoyed when, when, when David or Solomon were on the throne. And as well, their rivals are really close by. I mean, you got the Idumeans down here, you got the Philistines, you got Samaritans, you got Ammon and Moab. They are really, really close to Jerusalem. Really close. And on top of all that, I mean, these returnees, they had lived most of their lives in, 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 um, in captivity. They hadn't been taught the law of God like, like previous generations of Jews had been. And they didn't know how to be a holy nation. So while they succeeded in rebuilding the temple, they were a long, long way from the holy and glorious nation that God had promised in the Old Testament. So, but they did succeed in rebuilding the temple, and, and, um, and that sets the stage uh, for the, next, uh, the second return that Ezra leads in 458 B.C. And that story is told for us in Ezra 8 through 10. All right, so the rest of the book. And uh, Ezra is a fascinating guy. He was actually a descendant of the last high priest before Jerusalem was taken into captivity. So, so that helps him out because he comes from a prestigious family. That's how he had access to the king and the ability to, uh, to, to rally a group of people to return with him. But it especially means that he was trained in the Old Testament law. The Scriptures tell us he was a scribe who knew the Bible inside and out. And so he returns in 458 B.C. and he immediately goes to work teaching the law and calling Israel to obedience. And God used Ezra to lay a vital spiritual foundation for the returnees that really continues to have impact into the time of Christ. Ezra is a very important figure. And then finally, the last major event that we want to highlight is this third return in 445 B.C. And that is led by Nehemiah. All right, so, so while Ezra is a religious leader, he's a scribe, Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. So, so he comes from a political background, and, and his ministry focuses more on politics. So, so Nehemiah, his focus was, was on rebuilding the wall, 
and, and rebuilding the, the structures of the city and, and also uh, on creating more uh, political stability. And Nehemiah was a godly, capable, and bold leader who inspired the people to do great things. Now, of course, there's only 13 years between these two returns. So Ezra is still there. So, so these guys are working together as a team. You know, Ezra is trying to rebuild the, the, the spiritual foundations of the people. Nehemiah is working to rebuild the, the politics and, and the, the structures of society. And together, these men pave the way for, for the national and religious identity of the people Excuse me, that we meet in the New Testament. I mean, these are foundational, very important people. So, so that's some historical background. And, and hopefully, that's going to be really helpful for you in understanding the smaller pieces as we go along. So, so next, I want to spend a few minutes just talking about uh, the, 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 the book itself. All right, And uh, I put up there, Introduction to Ezra and Nehemiah, because something that is important to note is that originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. Now, now, all of our Bibles divide them in two. You have Ezra, and then you have Nehemiah. And, and my kids have been, you know, in, in Awana, they learn Ezra and they learn Nehemiah. Uh, but but in, originally, uh, in all the old uh, ancient Jewish sources, they are always listed as a single work. And all of our oldest Hebrew manuscripts list them as a single book. In fact, the first documented case we have of someone splitting them into two books is not until the church father Origen in the 3rd century A.D. I mean, centuries after these books were written. So almost certainly, they were originally written as a single book. And, and so, I'll tell you now that I am only committing to preaching through Ezra, but, but there is a good chance, depending on how things are going, and if you're not just totally bored with it, which I hope will not happen, that we will continue on into Nehemiah. But, but I like flexibility, so I'm not going to commit to that. So, so this originally would work. Secondly, I just noticed, uh, let's talk about authorship. And um, Now, Ezra and Nehemiah never says who wrote this book. Um, however, the book includes a, a number of first-person accounts from both Ezra and Nehemiah, but they're also mixed in with a lot of third-person accounts. So, so look over at Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. So, so now we're getting into the nerdy stuff that uh, Bible scholars deal with. So Ezra 7 verse 1 says, Now after these things, this is the beginning of the story of Ezra himself. Now after the, these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there After 8, verse 15, chapter 8, verse 15, it says, Now I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava, where we camped for three days, and when I observed the people and the priests, I did not find any Levites there. So now he's talking in the first person. All right? And that same pattern comes up in Nehemiah, where sometimes Nehemiah is talking to us in the first person, and other times... It just says, Nehemiah did X. So, so that back and forth uh, has inspired a lot of debate about who produced the final version of the book. And, and uh, many people have argued that the author is the same individual who wrote First and Second Chronicles because uh, they kind of, uh, Ezra Nehemiah picks up the story of First and Second Chronicles 
and there's a lot of similarities there. And in fact, uh, there's a, an ancient tradition going back to the Jewish Talmud. So, so that is a, a Jewish work that goes back before the time of Christ. That ancient tradition says that Ezra actually wrote First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. Which sort of makes sense, because he's a scribe, right? So he's trained in the law, he's educated, he could write a book like that, and obviously Ezra is motivated to, to teach people God's truth. Um, and so it's very possible that that's the case, but, but you also have this problem, right, of, of going back and forth between first and, and third person. So, so why would Ezra talk about himself in the third person? It would be sort of odd if I, you know, was talking to you and I said, well, yesterday Kit went to the store and Kit hung a cabinet and Kit ate food. Like, that would just be strange, right? And you would look at me like, something is wrong with you. So, so most conservative scholars believe uh, that, that shortly after the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, someone who was a close disciple of these men uh, used their personal memoirs and as well some other accounts extending, of course, back to the first return, and, and put them together into the book that we hold in our hands. And, and, and most conservatives believe that they would have completed this book uh, by 400 B.C. So, of course, you, you want, for the sake of accuracy, you would want the book to be completed as close to the events as possible. And, and so, so, so here's just a little practical point, all right? If you're holding your Bible... It looks as if Ezra and Nehemiah are like right in the middle of your Old Testament. But chronologically, that's not where it happens. Chronologically, Ezra and Nehemiah may have been the last books of the Bible to be completed. So it comes at the very end of the Old Testament story. So our Bibles are arranged differently for other reasons. So, so that's just a practical little point that, that maybe helps you think. All right, about where this is and how it fits in the Bible. All right, so that is background. And so lastly today, I want to spend, wrap up our time by talking about what is the message of these books? What is God communicating to us in Ezra in particular? So, so four major themes. The first major theme is God's faithfulness to his promise. You know, if you really want to appreciate the, the significance of, of, of Ezra and of the return to Judah, imagine the scene in Daniel chapter 9. You know, think about this man, Daniel. And when, when Daniel was a teenager, he was ripped out of his home and taken across the known world to Babylon in captivity. Of course, then he lived an exciting life in Babylon, right? I mean, he rose to prominence and, and, and escaped the lions and and saw God do incredible things. But now, by Daniel 9, he is an old man. And, and we don't know exactly uh, when uh, in, the, in the timeline these events take place, but it's possible that at this point, the Persians had already defeated Babylon, but Cyrus has not yet made his decree. And, and he's reading Jeremiah. He reads this prophecy that after 70 years, God is going to allow his people to go home. But, but Daniel looks around and thinks, there's no way this guy is just going to let us leave. I mean, he just took the throne. I mean, that's not happening, and we don't have any political pull to force this to happen. But Daniel 9 says that, that he takes God's word, and he sits down in sackcloth and ashes. He begins to fast, and he begins to pray, Lord, please allow our people to go home. 
Please allow, fulfill your promise and let us go home. And Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And God did just that. God moved Cyrus to write a decree and to set in motion a promise that that if you're a Jew, just looking at circumstances probably seemed too good to be true. And again, I want to emphasize that this decree allowing the Jews to go home is massive within God's eternal purpose. Because most of the prophecies about Messiah cannot be fulfilled in Babylon. They have to be in Israel. They have to be a nation for God to do all the things that he had said. And so the entire story of of Ezra is a testament to the faithfulness of God. I mean, God is never fickle. He always keeps his promises. And so you can absolutely trust God to do everything he has promised. Everything. And if you are in Christ, he will give grace for every trial that you face. He will carry you through every temptation. He will hear every confession of sin and forgive it. And ultimately, he will finish his work and he will bring you to glory. God keeps his promises. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a faithful God. And he is in particular faithful to the promises of the gospel. We see that in the book of Ezra. And we're going to talk about that a lot in the coming weeks. And then a second closely related theme. Oops. Is the theme of perseverance through hardship. Now, something that really stood out to me as I've read through Ezra a number of times in the last couple of months is is that everything in the story of Ezra is hard. Everything is hard. So, so yes, on the one hand, God is fulfilling these incredible promises, and that's exciting and, and wonderful. But at every turn in this book, every turn in this book, it is filled with opposition and fear and temptation. You ever gone through, like, you know, like, you got, like, two-month period where everything is hard. Like, like, everything you try and do. You know, you try and go somewhere and the tire's flat in your car. You try and fix this problem and five others pop up. You know, we go through times like that and they're, they're frustrating, they're exhausting. And, you, and, and you're thinking, God, can you just let one thing be easy? And really, that's the entire story of the book of Ezra. I mean, there are a lot of oppositions, a lot of hardships. And yet we see a people that persevered through it all. They trusted the Lord. They cried out to him for help. They made some big mistakes at times. But they kept going and for the most part doing the right thing. And you know, it's all a reminder to us that the Christian life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. You know, most of the time, serving God is not romantic and exciting. Most of the time, it's like that guy running a marathon, and it's about just, you continue to put one foot in front of the other, even when your body is saying, lay down and don't move anymore. And that's what it is. It's perseverance. You know, it might be that you're right there today, or you're exhausted, you're worn out, you didn't feel like coming to church this morning, but you put one foot in front of the other and you came. And God is faithful, and He always keeps His promises, and He is worthy of your obedience. So just persevere. Keep going. 
You know, hardship is not necessarily God saying no. It might be that God is trying to grow you through it. So persevere and keep going. And then a third major theme in Ezra is worship. And this is significant because the first thing that the returnees do when they arrive in Jerusalem was they go to the Temple Mount. They clear a space and all the rubble from the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. They build an altar and they offer sacrifices. And the primary focus of Ezra 1 through 7 is the rebuilding of the temple. Now, it did not come easy. I mean, they, they don't have you know, cranes and payloaders and dump trucks. I mean, they're trying to rebuild a, a temple by hand. And they have a lot of opposition in the process. But worship matters. So they persevered in, in the priority of building God's temple. And as we watch them labor to build this temple, it should remind us that there is no greater priority in life than to be near to God and to worship Him. He deserves our praise, and He is the answer to our greatest needs. So so we must value every opportunity to be in the presence of God. And you need to make it a priority in, in in your private life. That you want to get on your knees and spend time with the Lord and in your public life through, through worship in the church. So, so worship is an important aspect of this book. And then finally, holiness amidst worldliness. You know, one of the biggest adjustments that Israel had to make during the captivity, and, and really it continues into uh, the return, is that they had to learn how to serve God under a pagan king. Because... In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they get back their city. They get back their temple. But they never get back a Davidic king. That's not happening until Jesus comes again. And so they have to learn how to serve God under largely a pagan context. They couldn't lean on the spiritual insulation of kings like David and Hezekiah and others. And that challenge plays a big role in Ezra as the returnees are struggling through Uh, How do they relate to these pagan peoples who are all around them? You know, will they let the pagans help them build their temple? Or will they do it on their own? You know, will they uh, benefit from their aid and, and, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours? Do we intermarry with the pagans and build close relationships? Or, Or do we just put ourselves out there and open ourselves up to hostility and opposition by remaining wholly committed to the Lord. Now, now, do we ever struggle with those kinds of issues ourselves? I mean, absolutely. I mean, we also live in an ungodly environment that is oftentimes very hostile to holiness. And it's hard. And it calls for, and it, it brings up a lot of complicated decisions. And so the characters in Ezra have to make some hard choices, and it is going to be very costly for them at times. And yet God's blessing is worth it. And God proves faithful. And so I'm really looking forward, among other things, to talking about how do we live in a pagan context? And how do we stay faithful to God amidst a world that that wants to constantly press us into its mold? So so to sum it all up, uh, the title that I've given to this series is Trust and Obey. I mean, Ezra is a story about the faithfulness of God and our struggle to trust Him. So I want to challenge you to keep trusting God. Because God is always faithful, 
and he will always be good. And so you can trust everything that God has said in his word. And the ultimate test of your faith is your obedience. But how do I know if I really believe that this word is true? Well, it's, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in how you live. So this week, keep your eyes on the Lord. Trust everything that he has said. And then do the right thing over and over and over. In the strength of his grace. Believing that God is worth it. And God always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this book. And thank you for its message And Lord, I pray that you would use this series to strengthen our faith, our resolve, our commitment to you, and and Lord, to encourage us to honor you, to please you, and to persevere through every hardship. And God, I pray for all of us in this room as, as we face various challenges and discouragements, Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to believe you and obey you and help us to look forward to the day that you fulfill every promise and make everything new. And so give us grace this week to honor you and to do your will in Christ's name.